morning, our scripture will be from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading from English Standard Version. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Eleven weeks. That's how long it's been since we've assembled. Eleven weeks. And I thank God for these eleven weeks. Because I have never appreciated assembling like I do today. To sing with you in person to see faces instead of a computer screen. And a little later, to remember the death of our Lord together. To hear prayers from other people besides myself. To, to look across the room and see people who share the same faith as me gathered here. I have missed this for 11 weeks and I thank God for creating that appreciation in me again because I needed it. I needed to be reminded how important and special it is that we can come together, that we are in this together. Eleven weeks were hard. But God shared something so valuable with me in eleven weeks that I wouldn't have ever gained if it wasn't for what we've gone through. So despite the difficulty of these past 11 weeks, thank God that you can have a greater appreciation for what it means to assemble together. Thank God that you can have a greater appreciation of what the church family means to each other. Thank God for these 11 weeks, for the benefits that will come as a result of them. Because there are benefits. And I have never appreciated being together like I do today. With that being said, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I am excited because today, on this day we finally get back together, I can also start a new series of lessons. And these series of lessons are going to be focused on the book of Philippians for the next several weeks. I don't even know how long it's going to go out yet. So just hold on and be ready. But the theme of this series is called Finding Joy in the Journey. See, one thing I love about the book of Philippians is it, it to me, it's one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, and it's because it is the most optimistic book. It is this positive book. It is a joy-filled book, and it is literally a joy-filled book. Because if you journey through Philippians, and, and, and you do a word study in Philippians, which is a, a good tactic in any study of any, any biblical book to see what words are prominent. It helps you understand the theme of the book and, and, and what mattered a great deal to the author of that book. If you journey through Philippians and do a word study, you'll discover that the word joy in both its verbal and noun form, verbal being rejoice and noun being simply joy, it appears 16 times in 104 verses. Now that's not an amazing number. I get that. But let me put that number in perspective for you. Uh, Philippians is the 
only epistle to have 16 appearances of the word joy in it. The next highest epistle, that is the next highest letter to have, or the letter with the next highest number of appearances of the word joy is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians has 251 verses, and yet it only uses the word joy 13 times. It's got more than double the verses of Philippians, but doesn't use joy near as much. The only book in the New Testament to supersede Philippians in the use of joy is the Gospel of Luke. It has 1,151 verses in it, and joy appears 22 times. That's 11 times the verses that Philippians has, but only six more appearances of the word joy. You see, when Paul wrote Philippians, he had joy on his mind. I know 16 times doesn't sound like that much. But when you read through the book, you can't help but experience Paul's joy. And this morning, I want to launch this series because I think it's important for us to understand the importance of joy. You see, you can't go through the book of Philippians without finding joy, but it, it can be very easy to go through this life without finding joy. Right now, we're gathered here today after 11 weeks of separation. And our time through COVID-19 would probably not be summarized with the word joy. When you think about all of the things you have not been able to experience or do, or are all the people you haven't been able to see and the places you haven't been able to go, there is an element in which you would say that this has not been joyous in general. And let's face it, with the events that have unfolded in the past week, with the death of a man at the, the hands of a police officer and, and the response of so many protesters that has turned violent, it's not a joyous time. But does that mean that we can't have joy? See, if there's any topic that is pertinent to our situation, to our, to our life right now, it's the topic of joy. We need to understand that you can have joy in the journey at all times, and that's going to be the focus of this series moving forward. But the first thing I want to do before we start diving into the text of Philippians, the first thing I want to do is explain why I think it's so important that we talk about joy. And it's for two reasons. Number one, it's important that we talk about joy. Because we confuse joy with happiness. I'm sorry, on my computer screen that looked a lot better. And remember, for 11 weeks, I've been using a computer screen that you've been looking at. So that white is not standing out as well as I thought it would. We confuse joy with happiness. You know, Phil, not Phil, oh, I'm sorry, I just said my old youth minister. Jay, Jay, man, I went a long way back for that. Jay did a lesson a few weeks ago on Wednesday night on the fruit of the spirit of joy. He talked about joy, and he, this was a key point throughout his lesson. If you missed that lesson, go back and listen to it because he did a, did a great job with it. And one of the things he pointed out as he talked about joy and happiness and the difference between them is ultimately he said he indicated that happiness is a temporary emotion derived from an external source. And joy is a permanent state of mind derived from an internal source. 
Specifically, if you go to the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, you'll see that that internal source is the presence of the Spirit in your life because the Spirit is going to produce that fruit in your life. And so happiness is this temporary feeling that we have when things are good, when things please us. Joy is not temporary. Joy is a permanent mindset that says no matter what I experience, I'm going to be joyful. There's a difference in the fact that one has an internal source, one has an external source, and there's a difference in the fact that one is temporary and one is permanent. And because joy is a permanent state of mind, that means it's not dictated by circumstance. See, I find it fascinating if you journey through the New Testament that joy is associated with suffering time and time again. You can look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 through 5. Paul said, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We rejoice in sufferings. James says in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 3, count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter said we can rejoice when we are grieved by various trials. Now here's the thing. If joy is temporary, if joy is, is something that's fleeting, then you can't have joy when you suffer. That's the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is permanent. Happiness is not. You are not instructed in Scripture to pursue happiness. You are instructed in Scripture to pursue joy. That's the difference. Now, I want you to think about this. There's a command that appears a couple of times. It appears in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, and it appears in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. In both times, Paul says, rejoice always. Now, think about those words, rejoice always. That means rejoice no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter what you're going through. And the implication of that instruction is that since joy is a matter of perspective rather than circumstances, there's never a situation in which we can't be joyous. True joy is not a matter of the conditions around you. True joy is a matter of your perspective. It's a matter of your attitude of your mindset, of how you look at things, not a matter of what is done to you. And so there's a big difference between joy and happiness. And throughout this series, we'll expound on that more. But one reason we need to talk about joy is because we confuse the two. We think happiness is the ultimate goal. And that's not the case. The ultimate goal is the pursuit of joy. We also need to talk about joy because we treat joy like it's an option rather than an obligation. We treat joy as if it's something we can choose to have or choose not to have. You know, when it comes to joy, we know it's a fruit of the Spirit, but we fail to realize that it's also a command. Now, here's what I want you to think about. When we think about the fruits of the Spirit, I think we have a tendency to believe that if we're producing some of those fruits, we're doing okay. That, that if we're doing good on the love and maybe the self-control, then hey, we're producing fruits, so we're on the right track. But the whole idea of the fruits of the Spirit isn't that you produce one or some, it's that you produce all, right? 
Isn't that the assumption of the text in Galatians chapter 5? That you're going to produce all of these fruits, not just one or two of these fruits? We have this mindset, you know, a banana tree doesn't produce apples, so therefore maybe I don't have to produce all the fruits. But that's not the correct way to look at this. The expectation in Scripture is that you're going to produce all of the fruits, which includes joy. And yet we overlook joy and its importance so much. Think about these commands with me for just a moment. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul said, Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. That doesn't really sound like a command at first. But in context, if you look at Romans chapter 12, particularly verses 9 through 13, rejoice in hope. It follows the command to abhor what is evil. We understand that's a command. And it follows the statement, outdo one another in showing honor. We understand that to be a command. And it precedes, immediately precedes the statement to be constant in prayer. We understand that's a command. And it precedes the, the, the instruction to contribute to the needs of the saints. In context, rejoice and hope is set amidst a whole bunch of short, brief commands. It's not an option. It's an expectation. You can also go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. Paul simply says, rejoice. We think that's just a, a nice platitude, right? But in context, it's set amidst these other statements where, where Paul says, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. They're all commands, and rejoice is a command. You are supposed to be joy-filled. You're supposed to engage in rejoicing. You're supposed to be consumed with joy. And be glad you're not standing in six feet of me because I'm spitting everywhere right now. <laughs> There's an expectation that joy is a part of your life. So here's my question for you. Can you be pleasing to God and be joyless? If joy is a fruit, if rejoicing is a command, can you be pleasing to God and be joyless? Can you be a Christian and be joyless? Can you really be a Christian and be joyless? See, I don't think so. I think a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. I think we've got to start looking at joy differently. Because joy is not an option. It's an obligation. We need to realize that the pursuit and the possession and the production of joy is the Christian's responsibility. And when, we, when we accept joy on those terms... It will change the way we look at joy. And now I want to turn your attention to the first chapter of Philippians, just the first two verses. You know, most of the epistles we read in the New Testament, they have an introductory section, and that's what we're going to talk about now. With this groundwork of joy already laid, and an understanding of why we need to talk about joy, let's look at what Paul has to say about joy in these first two verses. Now, when you look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, here's what you read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He never uses the word joy here, but I think he sets, he sets the table for understanding where he's going to go with this. There are things he says here that explain to us how your joy is determined. The first thing I want you to notice 
is that Paul referred to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus, or slaves of Christ Jesus, depending on the translation you use. And right off the bat, what I think we're learning is that joy is determined by who you serve. I mentioned this a few weeks ago in our Living on Purpose series when we talked about being saved for his service. I mentioned that Paul could have emphasized so many different titles when he wrote a letter like this. He could have referenced himself as the premier missionary of the first century, of all time for that matter. He could have referenced himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He could have used so many more important titles, but if you scan his letters, the title he preferred to use more than any other was servant. Often, Paul is going to call himself a servant when he communicates to people. Instead of describing himself with prominent titles, he chose to identify himself as one who is the absolute possession of another. One who is in complete submission to another. One who is under the mastery of another. And it's precisely because Paul viewed himself as a servant Precisely because he understood his position, precisely because he had surrendered himself to the mastery of Jesus Christ. That he could say a few verses later in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, For me to live is Christ. When Paul says that, for me to live is Christ, what he's ultimately communicating is his obsession with Christ. Now, obsession can, can, can have bad connotations, but in this sense, it doesn't. He is so consumed with Christ that all he can think about is Christ. He is so obsessed with the will of Christ that Christ sums up his life. Look at how obsessed Paul is with Christ in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, this is a passage that, that you may hear quoted every once in a while. He says, I want to know Christ. That's a, that's a beautiful sentiment. That's a beautiful statement. I want to know Christ. Don't you want that as well? Is that something you desire and long for, to know Christ? Is that a, a burning and aching in your heart? Well, maybe so, but let's listen to how that plays out in the life of Paul here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ, but notice specifically what that entails for him in the rest of that verse. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's beautiful. I want to know that too. One day I want to experience that. I think we can all get on board with the statement, I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. The next thing he says, I want to know participation in his sufferings. Now hold on a minute, Paul. I'm all on board with the power of resurrection, but I... I I want to know his sufferings? Do you, you really want to know his suffering? This is the, you're talking about the guy who had the nails driven through his wrists and his feet. The guy who, who experienced the, the torture uh, of a scourging. The guy who was hung on a cross and killed that way. You want to experience that? And then look what he says. Not only does he say, I want to know his sufferings. I want to know participation in his sufferings. But he says he wants to become like him in his death. 
Do you want to know Christ that much? Do you want to know Christ that well? Does Christ so consume your life that you can truly express the words that Paul is saying here? See, that's how obsessed Paul is with Jesus. He wants to know, he wants to experience, he wants to participate in not only the glorious aspects of Christ's life, but also the painful ones. He wants to suffer like Christ suffered. He wants to die like Christ died. So when Paul said to live as Christ, he wasn't just saying a nice platitude. He wants to know everything about Christ, and he wants to live in every way like Christ. You know, we understand Paul's sentiment here. We understand what Paul is saying when he says to live as Christ. We, we get that mentally. We understand it not so much because we've adopted the same attitude toward Christ, but because we've adopted the same attitude toward some hobby or some interest or some organization or some person or some place. We wear clothes that declare our obsession. We decorate our homes and vehicles with images that declare our obsession. We update our social media accounts with hashtags that declare our obsession. You may proclaim baseball is life. Basketball is life. You may have one of those stickers, those decals on your car that says salt life. Or one of the many knockoffs that I'm sure got sued at some point in time. Disney life, hunt life, lake life, golf life. It doesn't matter. You may have one of those on there. And what is it, what is it unintentionally or intentionally saying about you? It's saying that this is the sum total of your life. It's saying this is what's most important in your life. This is what life is all about. And we'll say those things and we'll decorate with those things without ever thinking about what the message underneath it is. We, we do it innocently. But ultimately, what we're declaring is that this is the essence of my life. And maybe it's not in a decal. Maybe it's not in a shirt you wear. Maybe it's not in the decorations of your home. Maybe it can be seen by looking at your checkbook and what gets the most of your financial investment. Maybe it can be determined by looking at your calendar and seeing what gets the most of your time. We understand the sentiment to live is Christ because we have things that we put there and say to live is blank. But how many of us fill in that blank with Christ alone, like Paul? Because Paul is saying here, when he declares himself a servant, he's saying more than we realize. He's saying that Christ is all in my life. And here's the thing. We intentionally or unintentionally declare things to be the essence of our existence. But when those things we deem to be the essence of life are taken away, you know what happens? We lose our source of joy. And that's exactly what this pandemic has exposed for many. When the NBA or, or Major League Baseball had to postpone their seasons, did it affect your joy? If college football is affected, Will it affect your joy? When your vacation got called off, did it affect your joy? 
when the sports you play or the show you were supposed to perform in got canceled, did it affect your joy? When you lost your job or got furloughed, did it affect your joy? When the mall or the movie theater or your favorite restaurant or that place you go to to socialize or to be entertained closed its doors, did it affect your joy? You see, my point is this. Everything in this world is temporary, and we just found that out really fast over the past 11 weeks. And when your joy is placed in something temporary, your joy can be taken away. And you can find out whether or not you placed your joy in something temporary by looking at who or what you serve. And if who or what you serve is temporary, then your joy will be temporary as well. But joy is not just determined by who or what you serve. Joy is also determined by where you live. Let me explain. You look here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and you'll see that Paul doesn't just reference a title for himself. He gives a title to his readers. When he speaks to this congregation, he refers to them as saints of Jesus Christ in Philippi or at Philippi. There's a juxtaposition here between the titles of saint and the location of Philippi. You see, a saint is one, a saint is, as one Bible dictionary says, one separated from the world and consecrated to God. The Greek word translated saint comes from the same word that we get sanctify or sanctification. They all come from the same word origin, and they refer to something that's been set apart something that's been separated from that which is uh, profane. It means something that is consecrated and made holy. So when you think of something that is sanctified, and you're over the age of 35, you think about your Sunday clothes that your parents would not allow you to wear at any other time of the week. Or you think about that special china that's in your mom's china cabinet that never got used. All it ever did was collect dust. If you're under the age of 35, then think about Sanctified as this, that Pokemon card that you saved to the end of the game because it was too good to lead off with. Or think about that outfit that you preserved for the first day of school because it was too good to wear on any ordinary day. We understand the idea of Sanctified. We understand what it means to set something apart. And what Paul says is that as Christians, we've been set apart, and we've been set apart from the world. You see, to be a saint is special. When Paul referred to his readers as saints, he was indicating that they are a holy people who have been separated from the kingdoms of of the world and placed into the kingdom of God. And so the term saint has citizenship implications. It says you're not a citizen of the world any longer. Instead, you're a citizen of heaven. And that's something that Paul emphasized in the third chapter of Philippians in verse 20 when he said our citizenship is in heaven. But you may have noticed that not only did Paul refer to them as saints, but he said that they are at Philippi. He made reference to their earthly residence. If Paul were were writing to us, he could have just as easily said the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Buford, or the saints in Christ Jesus who are in greater Gwinnett County, or the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Georgia, or the saints in Christ Jesus who are in the United States of America. 
And it's this juxtaposition of a title that references one's heavenly citizenship as well as a locale that alludes to one's earthly residence that's important. Because Paul is making the point that as a Christian, you live in two realms. You have your physical residence, but you also have your spiritual residence. And you have to decide which residence is your primary residence. Are you primarily a citizen of this world, or are you primarily a citizen of heaven? This decision matters because your joy will be contingent on the success of the kingdom with which you identify as a citizen. So if you're primarily a citizen of this world, then when the world turns ugly and evil and violent and dangerous, then your joy will diminish. But if you're primarily a citizen of heaven, then your joy will never diminish. You know why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we just experienced that this past 11 weeks. What's your primary residence? Because it will determine your joy. And your joy will be determined by what you focus on. Earlier I talked about how many times joy is mentioned in the book of Philippians. Despite the prevalence of joy in this book, there is another term that is more prevalent. It appears 37 times in this letter. That's more than one-third of the verses in this letter. It appears three times in the first two verses alone. It's the term Christ. One preacher said the letter of Philippians is full of Christ. See, when you take a moment to conduct a a cursory overview of this book, it's immediately evident that Christ is the centerpiece. Yes, joy may be a theme, but the book is all about Christ. Because through these four chapters, Paul's message is Christ-centered. He makes four bold claims about Christ that he expects every Christian to give an amen to. In the first chapter, he indicates that Jesus is our purpose. He wrote from prison. We'll talk about that more in a future lesson. But he wrote from prison where he's waiting to find out if he's going to be exonerated or executed. And yet he's full of joy. You can look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's saying it doesn't matter whether I'm free or I'm in prison because my life's purpose is to exalt Christ. And as long as I'm doing that, I can rejoice because I'm doing what God called me to do. And then if you look in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, we've made reference to it already, but he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul's saying, it doesn't matter if I live or die because my life's purpose is to exalt Christ. And that can be accomplished in life, that can be accomplished in death. 
So in chapter 1, the, the Christ-centered message is that Christ is your purpose. In chapter 2, the Christ-centered message is that Christ is your pattern. If you look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, you'll see that Paul said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And the point Paul makes here as he writes these words, he's writing them in the midst of a section where he addresses Christian conduct. Before these words, he called on Christians to be united, to be unselfish, to be humble. After these words, he called on Christians to be obedient and blameless and to not complain. And Paul's whole point is that in order for us to conduct ourselves the way that God intends, we have to follow the example of Christ. He is our pattern. Paul's focus is on Christ because Christ is the perfect pattern to follow. And then in chapter 3, Paul indicates that Jesus is our prize. A better word would be reward, but I've got a P thing going here. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and nine, through 9, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul reflected on all of his accomplishments in chapter 3. He reflected on all of his accolades, all of his achievements, and he says that they're worthless in comparison to Christ because Christ is the ultimate reward. A little later in, in verse 14 of Philippians 3, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. And he follows that up with the call for those who are mature to think this way. And then later in chapter 3, he talks about citizenship in heaven, as we've alluded to. Paul's focus is on Christ because eternity with Christ is the ultimate reward. And finally, in chapter 4, after in chapter 1, he said that Christ is our purpose. In chapter 2, he said Christ is our pattern. In chapter 3, he says Christ is our prize or reward. And in chapter 4, he's going to say that Christ is our provision. He talks about contentment. He says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content in verse 11. In verse 12, he continues by saying, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full, to be hungry, both to bound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's in prison and he's declaring he's content even though circumstances are less than ideal. And he can say that he's content because Christ is all he needs. Here's the point. As Paul emphasizes his joy in this letter, he simultaneously emphasizes Christ because he's trying to get the Christians in Philippi and he's trying to get us as Christians today to realize that your joy is tied to your focus. If you're focused on money, then your joy will fluctuate when your bank accounts and your, and your, your portfolios or your paycheck fluctuate. If you're focused on popularity, then your joy will fluctuate with the number of followers you have on social media or the number of accolades you receive in society. If you're focused on success, then your joy will fluctuate with your occupational title 
and the number of organizations that seek your involvement. But if you're focused on Christ, then your joy will always be constant because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, all this is to say one simple thing. Joy is a choice. You can choose your perspective, but you can't choose your circumstances. You can choose how you're going to look at things, but you can't choose what things are going to happen to you. You can choose your residence. You can choose your focus. And you can choose who you serve. Joy is your choice. And the ultimate question today is are you choosing joy? Joy matters because God's kingdom, which is currently manifested in his church, is made for joy. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom was made to be joy-filled. Are you reflecting that kingdom? Listen, I know I've gone long. It's been 11 weeks, so I think I've earned it. I want to share one last story with you. I heard about a minister who invited a man he met to attend worship services with him. And the man said, why would I go to church? Of course, the minister replied, why would you not want to go to church? And the man explained that one day he woke up and just had this urge that he needed to go to church. And so he picked out this particular church, and he, he, he went there, but he was, he was too nervous to enter. There was a small cafe across the street from it, so he decided to sit down, get a cup of coffee, and watch as people entered and exited that church building that morning. And as he sat there and watched the people coming and going to the church building, he said they looked just as miserable coming out as they did going in. So why does he need church? What does your joy level tell the world about Christ? What does your joy level tell the world about his church? What does your joy level tell the world about your future? You know, maybe one reason less people are coming to Christ isn't because we're using the wrong evangelistic methods. Maybe it's not because we're targeting the wrong people, or maybe it's not because we're not putting forth the right effort. Maybe one reason people aren't coming to Christ is because we're failing to model Christ's joy. One last verse for you to think about as we close. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. It instructs us to lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. If Jesus can go to the cross with joy, then shouldn't we go through this life with the same? So let's find out how we can find joy in the journey. Stick with me for the next several weeks as we go through the book of Philippians, looking at how joy manifested itself in different situations. And let's become a more joy-filled people. Maybe today 
Joy is on your heart because we're back together. I know it is mine. Maybe today you want to express that joy in some fashion. Maybe you are so joy-filled that you want to give your life to Christ. There is nothing more joyous than that. If you're at the point where you want to make the decision to become a child of God, become a part of his family, we encourage you to do so by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. We will gladly rejoice if you do. Maybe as a child of God, you are lacking in joy. Maybe you fail to see joy as your expectation. Maybe you've gone through life joyless and you realize something's got to give. You need a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of mind. Well, now's an opportunity to make those corrections as well. I don't want to end the sermon because I don't want us to go home. But I know we have to. So I offer this invitation that the Lord began. If you have any need to come, we invite you to do so while together we stand and sing. No, sir.